I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Episode 33 for our English listeners. As has become customary, David, do you have any numerology to throw at us vis-a-vis 33? No, I think I can maybe settle these numerology questions for good to say that I I have almost no numerological uh, associations uh, in general. So you have absolutely no association to the number 33? Or or most numbers, to be honest. I mean, I have a clear association that I've been waiting for you to ask. Is it about sports? Yep. Uh, That's why. I I think that's the only reason that there would be. (laughs) 33 is the number worn by the greatest goaltender in Montreal Canadiens history and in National Hockey League history. Who's the person? One Patrick Roy. I've heard of that person. A.K.A. St. Patrick. I don't like that part. (laughs) So what's the uh, piece of Patrick Roy information that you're leading up to here? He was just a tremendous goalie and his number was 33. Oh, that's it. That is it. That is all. All right. Well, um, thanks for letting me know. All right. Well, that was a perfect segue. Thank you so much. Um, there was no segue. No, but like I'm segueing right now. Oh, okay. We have a ton of important things to get into, and I understand we've just dragged out the last 30 seconds. But this particular episode is the first of a rolling series of mailbag episodes. Mailbag, 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 mailbag. So the idea being that we get a lot of mail. And there are a lot of conversations that we have sort of behind the scenes on the show, a lot of interviews that don't make it to air. A lot of themes and topics that we just haven't gotten around to finding the right way of sharing. And as time goes on, there are things that we feel like we should answer, not just to individual people, but to the listenership at large. The thinking was that we could talk through them, maybe touch on some issues that we haven't touched on before, and then hopefully disagree about some things. Yeah, I mean, I also I was also hoping this can sort of be like a check in episode of like where we're at, how we're feeling about the show. That sounds great. I mean, for me... I'm feeling sort of exhausted. Mm. Like when we started the show, the Jewish media cycle was a lot different. I feel like in the past two years, there's been a noticeable shift. Definitely. And at the beginning, we were, I think it was like every three weeks, we would be pouring over the Jewish publications and mainstream news sites for anything. And we'd find maybe like three or four articles in a month that we could really pull apart and talk about. And now the news cycle is 15 seconds and five new ones come up. And then if you aren't glued to Twitter, you just missed it. Yeah. And it's not necessarily an entirely negative development, right? Like there's really great pieces that we're seeing. 100%. There's also a lot of dreck. (laughs) And it's just a question of, in some ways, it's just capacity at the end of the day. And part of what that has meant is being exposed to a lot of bad takes all the time. Just turn on Facebook or turn on Twitter, and I just feel like I'm drowned in bad takes. It's it's really easy to get lost in the sauce. But the positive side of it is that the conversations that happen in like Jewish left media spaces seem to have really expanded. The kind of version of the Jewish left that I think we have more time for just wasn't happening online in the same frequency that's happening now. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And so check out those Facebook groups. Woo! Yeah, and so it, it definitely feels more like we're a part of a conversation. Mm. But before we move on to the mailbag, um, I want to hear how you're feeling about the process of going through the Jewish media, making the show, talking to people about the same ideas. I, yeah, I think there's two pieces to it for me. The first is that, at risk of sounding cliched, I just feel like grateful that we get to talk to such interesting people all the time. Like it's a little bit of a slog to do the planning and canceling here and canceling there. But the fact that we've been able to chat with such brilliant people who are doing such great things 
feels really lucky and something that I wouldn't be able to do if we didn't have the show. So to begin with, I'm just so grateful that we've been able to have these conversations. But yeah, that second piece is just the amount of time and energy and effort. And sometimes it's super taxing. I feel like I've actually cut down a lot of my media consumption just because the internet really stresses me out these days. I'm sure I'm not alone. I don't feel like I have the same capacity to just like sift through Twitter and read through Facebook arguments, you know? Yeah, I really think that as time goes on and as the news cycle shrinks, it feels like we're having a conversation on a different register. Yeah. And and, and I feel like it's, you can see it, like we've been getting a lot less responsive, like we're not responding to pieces anymore. Like we're just talking about things that we think are interesting and important. It feels to me like we're developing these like longer term relationships with people and having conversations that are more long-term conversations. Sometimes they're more of a slow burn and it feels a lot better. It feels like a, a much, yeah. yeah, it's a lot easier to engage with, at least for me, than the constant day to day. Yeah. And I think that's why, for example, we'll miss a story or we won't cover something because it's just like, it's too difficult for two people who are basically volunteering. Although shout out to everyone who's helped us on the Patreon. And it's covering the cost of the show that, so we don't have to do it out of the pocket anymore. It makes a big difference. And it's great that we're able to then pull back and try and have broader conversations, which I think is what we wanted to do from the start, but we didn't maybe necessarily know how to at that point. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's a lot of rambling from us. Uh, So maybe we should move on to the mailbag segment and hear from all listeners. That sounds great. Okay, so I'm pulling out the uh, the mailbag here. For the purpose of anonymity, we're not going to be disclosing all the full names of the people who write in. Uh, but this letter is from Yitzchak, last name withheld. And Yitzchak writes, how is your Yiddish? If it's bad, why don't you study? Great podcast. Thanks. So, David, how is your Yiddish? I mean, my Yiddish is practically non-existent. I mean, I, I know some Hebrew from, you know, going to... Some Hebrew. You know, day school growing up. But, I mean, we should also tell people, like, we, we, we were in Yiddish class for a while with Moish. We were. I spent a fair amount of time. If you haven't heard Moish on one previous episode of the show, he's sort of this uh, elder Jewish anarchist figure among a crew that we're sort of a part of in Montreal of Jewish radicals. And, and for a while, we had a class going where we would get together with Moish and, and he would teach us Yiddish and, and also teach us about a lot of cultural history. I spent a fair amount of time in that class. I learned the vowels. That was very important because I also had the Hebrew letter background, but the pronunciation is super different. And we also learned the four different kinds of dialects that exist and the political ramification of those four dialects. But I still think I'm around like grade one or two level. Like I'm not having a full on conversation in Yiddish right now. Yeah, I, I can barely understand. Like there's a, a neighborhood called the Mile End, which is in between where we record and where we both live. And whenever I bike through, there's always tons of Hasidic Jews in that neighborhood. And they're all speaking Yiddish to each other. And it is a long term goal of mine to be able to uh, speak Yiddish to those people. It, there's ultimately a time question. Like when yeah, Yitzhak exactly. asked, if it's bad, why don't I study? Um I have a lot of things going on. I'm trying to make this pod. If I had all the time in the world, I think I would definitely want to become fluent. Yeah, I mean, I stopped going to lessons because I simultaneously ran out of time and money. <laughs> so yeah. it was, that's that's why it's not better. But, but we're also in a region where uh, bilingualism, English-French, is very important. Yeah. So adding a third language was a little stressful on top of that for me. Yeah. 
But anyway, uh, thank you, Yitzchak, for the question. Thank you. The next piece of mail is from Lane, last name withheld. Hi, Lane. The message reads, not really a question, but I think y'all... Hold up, hold up, hold up. It's not really a question. Lane, what are you doing? This is a question period. It's called the mailbag. (laughs) But listen, we're going to let it slide because I think the substance of the the letter, um, first of all, could be turned into a question. And second of all, is something that we've both talked about before. Okay, so how about, can you read it and then read it again as if it was a question? Okay, so the message reads, not really a question but I think y'all need to make a more serious effort in discussing capitalism, socialism, uh, Marxism, etc. I will ask it as a question. Can you make a more serious effort in discussing capitalism, socialism, and Marxism, etc.? Thanks for writing in, Lane. Uh, the answer is definitely yes, I think we can. Uh, this message is in line with a lot of input we've gotten over the past few months. Yeah. And I, th- I think it's true. We, we could make more of an effort. We've been talking a bit sort of behind the scenes about what it means to center capitalism more in our conversations on the show. There's two levels to it to a certain extent, right? Like we've been talking about doing some kind of an episode on the Bund and their history, both in Europe and in the US. But then there's also the question of like, how is that analysis more present in all the work we're doing, right? Yeah, I mean, right now, the way that our conversations about capitalism come up are just sort of asides in other conversations, because the political orientation of the show, the political orientation of both me and Sam is anti-capitalist, it's anarchist politics. But in order to talk about it more explicitly, because of the format of the show, we sort of rely on the existence of explicitly anti-capitalist Jewish groups in North America. And unfortunately, they're in short supply, at least in ways where we can have an extended conversation that makes sense. It seems like there's a gradual shift in this happening right now, and, and keep an eye out. Uh, we're we're going to be trying to get things like this on the show if when, when we find them. Uh, but if you're in an explicitly anti-capitalist Jewish organization that is focusing primarily on opposition to capitalism, please get in touch. We'd love to talk with you. Moving on to the next piece of mail. The next letter is from Rogue Primate, last name withheld. And it's both to us and to Canada Land, the popular uh, media criticism podcast based out of Toronto. Um, it says, to trade podcasts in Canada land, both recent pods dealt with LGBTQ issues and intersectionality openly. No mention of Chicago Dyke March and the banning of the Rainbow Star of David Flagg. Thought this needed unpacking. Any reason you omitted it? Okay. I don't even know if anyone on the Jewish internet even wants to talk about this anymore. I mean, for people listening who don't know what the Chicago Dyke March is a reference to, who don't know what is being referenced about the Rainbow Star of David Flagg, can you maybe give people a very quick... uh... Oy vey, I can try. Um, So the Chicago Dyke March, as its name suggests, is a march that happens, I believe, during Pride in Chicago. Yeah, although I, I, I also believe that it is autonomous from Pride, and so they have their own policies. So the facts of what transpired are somewhat contentious. On a base level, several people with rainbow flags that had the Star of David in the middle of it. AKA the pink washing flag. Were were asked to leave the march if they did not bring down their flag. Well actually it wasn't even the presence of the flag that got them ejected, from my understanding. It, and and first of all it wasn't just a group of people. It was members of a wider bridge, the Zionist organization, who actually got in touch with them before to tell them they were going to come and knew that this march had an explicitly anti Zionist stance. Not only brought the pink washing flags with them also were shouting down chants that were talking about the liberation of Palestine. It was then that they were confronted by a group of anti-Zionist Jews to tell them to leave. Now, there have literally been a thousand articles written about this. Um, and I think one of, the, one of the problems that we had is finding people to engage with this in a way that we thought added to the conversation, as opposed to just 
fill up more space. And so we didn't talk about the march right after it happened. And because of scheduling realities, by the time we got around to actually being able to talk about it, it felt like too much time had passed. Yeah. And, and on I think on a more fundamental level, it, it seemed impossible to talk about it in any way that didn't feel like we were falling into a trap. Like it seemed like the entire media controversy that became the Chicago Dyke March was very intentionally engineered by a wider bridge. And right wing Jewish media outlets very happily participated in creating that controversy and had a very particular framing, which was not surprising to us, or I think should be surprising to any Jewish leftist. Like we've seen this a zillion times. And engaging with that framing to me just really felt like we were falling into the trap that was laid for the Jewish media. And so I'm sort of happy we didn't talk about it, that we just moved on to the next thing. It seemed clear to us what was happening and hopefully to most of our listenership. And I think if you've listened to a bulk of episodes of the Trade Podcast, you've heard us talking about these issues just in other contexts. I hope that answers your question. Rogue primate, last name withheld. And thanks for writing in. So Sam, what's the next, uh, what do we got next in the bag? Thank you. Just reaching in. All right. What do you got? This letter is from Zan, last name withheld. Hi, Zan. Hello, Zan. This is a long letter, so I'm going to have to abbreviate. Are you okay with that? What do you mean by abbreviate? Highlight the relevant passages and skip the non-relevant passages. It works. Okay. Hi, David and Sam. Hi, Zan. Let me first say that I love listening to your show. Thank you. I'm not Jewish at all. But it's still great to hear the radical Jewish perspective on things. No problem, Zan. Glad we could help. And now to the point. On Canada Land recently, Jesse Brown had a discussion with a Muslim woman, Nahid Mustafa, that was primarily about female circumcision. And they both mentioned that they, a Jew and a Muslim, agreed with the practice of male circumcision, and that their choice to do it to their children was not anyone else's business. Incidentally, I came across two articles in The Independent and The Huffington Post, about doctors in Denmark declaring the practice ethically unacceptable, if done for a non-medical reason. Now here's the crux of the letter. Thanks, Anne. I think the practice inflicted on infants and done for fashionable or ethnic reasons outside of the doctor's office for not specifically health-related aims is simply barbaric and should evoke the same revulsion and outrage as female genital mutilation. The degree of harm is less, of course, but the principle is the same. It is unnecessary, painful, permanent, and is not the conscious choice of the victim. If circumcision is to be done on cultural grounds, let it occur at or after 18, when the man can give informed consent. I would like to hear your opinions on the matter. Circumcision is outside the cultural ken of my family, so I would like to be informed by the views of people for whom it might not necessarily be. Thanks, Zan. Last name withheld. Well, thanks for writing in, Zan. And several footnotes, and we always appreciate when letters are well-researched. Okay, so first things first, what Zan is describing as male genital mutilation, I mean, I think they're just talking about circumcision on a penis. Yes. um, Which is something that both men, women, and many other genders have. But I understand the term female genital mutilation is very widely used and means a very specific thing. But on the Trave podcast, uh, we do not believe in the collective nightmare that is the gender binary. Yeah, and okay, so this is another potato that I'm not sure if I have a full answer to. You got to stick your forks in on both sides. Definitely. It's too hot. It's way too hot, and I don't know if I'll be able to, I don't know where we're going with this metaphor. But the point of the story is, is I think that I don't have a fully fleshed out idea of this necessarily. You want to throw the potato over that? Sure, Uh, sure, but I'm going to be wearing uh, oven mitts. So one, two, three, 
Thank you. So, I mean, I feel like I'm generally sympathetic to the arguments against circumcision, uh, like the ones that Zan is referencing, but it's difficult for me because the context in which I hear them and they're presented and they exist in the world tends to be in this weird... Yeah, like, I don't like know if right you, wing world. Yeah, it's sort of like MRA adjacent yeah. kind of like circumcision rights, mostly cis men who are like, we don't want circumcision. And so it tends to be coming from a context that is hostile to the Jewish cultural practice from people who are not Jewish. And it makes me feel weird for that scrutiny to be coming from, from that context. I don't like the idea of non-Jewish white men harassing Jewish communities about cultural practices in general, although the stuff with the Hasids around Metitzah that needs to change. So I'm totally on board with the critique and concern about where this kind of stuff usually comes from. Mm-hmm. Where I feel like I'm in a pickle is that if I were to be responsible from day zero of a young human who had a penis... I'm not sure where I would land on this issue. Mm. I agree that it is a non-consensual act done to a child. There is something about the cultural practice in a very weird way that feels like something I should do. And it's tough because I understand how contradictory that sounds. Mm-hmm. Um, I obviously have yet to be put in this position before. Yeah. I'd say maybe we can start with eliminating the practices in the Jewish community that lead to children getting sick and dying among the more religious, and then we can come for the broader practice later. But I guess you talked about the broader, and I'm talking about the individual. Where do you think you would stand in the similar circumstances that I just named? If I was like a caretaker figure, if I was something resembling a parent in a kid's life, I feel like it would be a pretty non-normative environment, and I don't think that... I, yeah, I don't feel like I would feel inclined to fall back on that. Mm. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think I went directly to the individual case and you're talking more about whether this is a campaign to work on, right? Like I think like there's the broader social condemnation and then there's the individual choice, right? Well, yeah, I just, I feel like it's difficult for me to talk about this without talking about the context in New York where there actually are campaigns to, to end certain practices around, yeah, for sure, for around sure. circumcision that are very contentious right now. And I should say that, yeah, I do think those things need to end. They need to end immediately. Totally. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that one. Well, Zan, I hope uh, we gave you some food for thought on this one. Probably not. Do you have anything to add, David? No. Nah. Me neither. Okay, so our next question is from Michael, last name withheld. And Michael asks, is Zio an anti-Semitic slur? Oy vey. What do you think? Okay, I think it's so complicated because my initial reaction several years ago when I heard the term was that it is an abbreviation of the term Zionist. Uh, I think that's definitively correct. And I also am not sympathetic to the argument that David Duke uses the term Zio, therefore it is anti-Semitic. Okay. I have yet to be presented with information that indicates that Zio specifically is anti-Semitic. Like, I'm not close to the idea that someone who is anti-Semitic could use that term, but I don't think some people who may be anti-Semitic using that term render it an anti-Semitic term. I mean, my understanding of the reason that we're being asked this question is because following the unending media circus that was the reactionary interest in the Chicago Dyke March was a tweet that came from the Chicago Dyke March Twitter account following the march, which used the term Zio and immediately got attacked by Jewish community media once again, there was this 
article in Tablet, I think, that was was trying to state a case that it is inherently an anti-Semitic slur because starting in the 80s, David Duke and the far right started using Zio as an anti-Semitic stand-in. And so I understand as a result of that reality and that history, like I'm comfortable shying away from that term. Same. I, I understand how it is potentially not useful to use, but to suggest that it is inherently an anti-Semitic slur, I think is a step beyond that and ignores the fact that it is a ab- common abbreviation that's used in many contexts, including Palestine solidarity, the left, leftist Jews, and, and many others that are not inherently anti-Semitic. Okay, so the general takeaway is that the term itself isn't inherently anti-Semitic. Some anti-Semites may use this word. We also may agree that we would not necessarily choose to use it, but painting the word and anyone who uses it as anti-Semitic is a huge political mistake. Yeah, but I understand if people have a guttural reaction because our primary reference point for this term is its use by the far right, that's totally legit. I, I feel like that's why I am shying away from using that term on the regular. But I do not agree that it is an inherently anti-Semitic slur. Thank you so much, Michael. Last name withheld for your letter. Hope we did a good job explaining what we feel about it. So what's the next letter, Sam? Young David. I mean, I'm older than you, by the way. <laughs> it's young Sam. Fair enough. It seems like our mailbag has one last piece of mail in it. So you want me to read this last letter? I think you should. Um, this last letter comes from anonymous last name withheld. And the question is... Seems fairly redundant to withheld their last name, then. <laughs> it says, why are you not talking more about groups like If Not Now and Bend the Ark on the show? Well, anonymous last name withheld. Thanks for writing in. Thank you. Um, I feel more comfortable answering the If Not Now piece. Um, I don't know that much about Bend the Ark. Well, we can split it up. Yeah, we certainly can. I think we've tried to engage a little bit with If Not Now, and I think that ultimately there's just a question of difference of politics. I mean, it's difficult. I mean, like, If Not Now is clearly growing and inspiring a lot of people and doing a lot of actions that are very exciting to both of us. Um, And we've had members on the show before, but it seems like there's sort of two ways you can talk about it, If Not Now. There is there's sort of an aspect of it that exists to some degree in a decentralized way to the extent that there are people in different cities doing their own thing. And, And I feel like that's actually the work that is has been the most exciting to us. But then there's also a parallel national structure, uh, sort of a leadership in New York that is operating more as a national organization, uh, whether it's fundraising or strategy or messaging or whatever. And there's no position on right of return. There's no position on BDS. There doesn't seem to be any interest in taking leadership from or fostering relationships of solidarity with Palestinians. And for a Jewish group that is primarily focused on questions of Palestine to be making strategy and decisions in isolation as Jews to me, just raises a lot of red flags. Um, we would, we've actually tried, like we would love to have someone from If Not Now to come on the show to sort of hash out these disagreements or, or maybe things that are misconceptions, but we haven't been able to do that yet. So what's your Ben the Ark take? Oh, well, I mean, for okay, so the thing that I think is worth mentioning to listeners, which to you and I is very clear, has something to do with what the show is at, at this point in time, which in, in, to a large degree is about finding Jewish projects and Jewish groups, Jewish writers and thinkers who are more or less in line with the politics that we want to highlight and lift up that we don't see in most other places in Jewish media and share our political priorities. And that's mostly what we do. Occasionally, we'll delve more into histories that we think are important. But for the most part, it's just telling people this group exists or, or this person exists and having a conversation with them. Moving beyond that 
to engaging with groups who do not share those politics is not a stage of the project I think we've reached yet. Um, we do talk with people whose politics we disagree with for other reasons, to tell particular stories or histories that we think are important. But groups like Ben the Ark, which are more liberal, I don't think we've, we've found the right way to engage with on the show yet. Do you think that that satisfies anonymous last name withheld's question? Um, I hope so. Is there anything that we forgot to mention? I don't know. And if we did, we can talk about it on the next mailbag. Yeah, I mean, I just want to say, like, obviously, the show is a work in progress. We're just giving you a bit of behind the scenes of our rationale for certain things. If you have advice or input, or you do want to see us uh, going in a different direction than we currently are on the show, let us know. Like, we'll take that into account. Uh, This is definitely something that we're taking as we go. All right. So I think it's time to wrap up the mailbag segment. We've answered several questions. We got several more. Please keep them coming, trafepodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we're going to keep doing this every now and then. Um, so it might take a little while, but we'll try to get to as many as we can. But Sam, how do we end the mailbag segment? We've never gotten to this point. We've never done this before. I think we should maybe input a sound effect of someone like zipping something up. Or I can just actually close the mailbag right now. Hold on. All right, go over it. And with that, we return the mailbag to its resting place in the CKUT studio. Hi, this is Eliyahu calling from New York. To share with the Trafe listeners a little bit about the term Shkoyach. Firstly, the term originates from a Talmudic conversation between God and Moses. God says, Yashar kochecha sheshibarta, which translates from the Aramaic to, Your hands should be strengthened that broke the tablets. This was shortened into Hebrew as Yashar koach, and subsequently into Yiddish as Shkoyach. The appropriate way to respond to receiving a shkoyach is adank in Yiddish or baruch tiyeh, you should be blessed in Hebrew. Finally, there are two parallels for shkoyach used by Sephardic or Mizrahi Jews. First is hazak ubaruch, which is responded to with hazak uamas. And second is tisku lemiswoth, answered with tisku laasoth. Get out your ram's horn, heat it up and drill a hole. Or don't. It's time for Shkoyach. Shkoyach! 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 All right, so we are in the world-renowned Shkoyach segment. Oh, did we get a new renown? Nope. I am just keep going with it, and hopefully eventually people will believe us. Uh, I mean, I don't believe it. <laughs> um, what is your Shkoyach this week, David? Well, mine's actually pretty serious, so maybe we should start with yours. Tomato, tomato. All right. So on a lighter, more positive note, and in the interest of cultural Jewish identity, oh, interesting. I am going to give my shkoyach to one of the kings of Jewish food in the 21st century and probably in the 20th century as well. But who is it? It is someone named Claudia Rodin. And so Claudia Rodin is Egyptian born. Mm-hmm. And she has just churned out cookbook after cookbook of 
a wide range of Jewish foods. Or is this the cookbook you're using to make all your Jewish food lately? Yes. Which uh, I think we've mentioned on the show, right? That you're on a kick? Yes, I believe we've talked about it on the show. And yes, it is my primary source. Um, the book is called The Book of Jewish Food, An Odyssey from Samarkand to New York. And I just want to give Claudia Rodden a shout out and just talk about how I've had a great time cooking a wide range of recipes from her book. Yeah, I was looking forward to that borscht. <laughs> I've been making at least one or two a week, so... Yeah, but then there was meat in it. I know, that was that was not my fault. There were other parties involved who put meat in, but okay. um, how about in the next week? Sure, yeah, that sounds great. I just had a really good time thinking a little more intentionally about cooking. I think I've always cooked in a more utilitarian way, like... I'm hungry, rice, beans, carrots. Like I've tried to cook some more Eastern European Jewish food and like think about what my relationship to all that is. And it's been really, really, really pleasant, like taking two or three hours and making some of the food in Claudia Rodin's book. That sounds really nice. So major shkoyach to Claudia Rodin. Thank you for keeping me busy and uh, making decent borscht. Can't wait to try it. So that was our somewhat positive, uplifting shkoyach. Now uh, bring the tone down again. Yeah, so okay. So I have an anti-shkoyach, but I also have a shkoyach to like brighten the mood before we leave. Ah, lovely. But my anti-shkoyach today goes to the province of Quebec. David, you're treading on very thin ice as a Torontonian from the center of Canada. I believe you should choose your words wisely. Okay. With that being said, I am a self-aware Quebec resident and understand that there are significant problems with the region. I would say so. However, I do feel uncomfortable when a Torontonian makes said criticisms. Okay, so hopefully you can judge the criticisms on their merit. My anti-Skoyach is because of several things that all have the same theme. The first is a demonstration that I was at two days ago in Quebec City that I think you're aware of. I am aware, but for people who aren't aware, what transpired in Quebec City on Sunday? So there is an organization in Quebec called La Meute. They're sort of a crypto-fascist, anti-immigrant organization, and and members of their group were actually in Charlottesville among the far-right Nazi demonstrations that were occurring. And six or seven months ago, there was the Quebec City mosque shooting. They're one of the organizations that was responsible for creating the anti-Muslim climate that led to that shooting. And they scheduled a demonstration in Quebec City with the stated aim of opposing what they described as generous immigration policies by the government. And thankfully, a bunch of comrades and allies decided to confront them. Yeah, we kept them in a parking garage uh, for about five hours so they couldn't start their demonstration. Uh, eventually, the cops uh, attacked everybody and cleared us out of there, and they and they marched through the city. Uh, the police did everything they could to make sure that march happened. And the mayor of Quebec, following the incident, condemned the leftist demonstrators And today, before we're recording this, actually made a statement that he wants to see all religious head coverings banned from Quebec City when you're using public services. For people who haven't listened to the podcast for a long time, Quebec has been dealing with the ongoing threat of banning, quote, religious symbols from public office and and from general public areas. It's very similar to the whole secularism debate in France that targets Muslims, but also ends up sweeping up other groups of people. Um, but the next thing on the list that I want to get to, of the reason that I want to give my anti square to the province of Quebec, is that the Quebec government right now are mulling over whether to pass Bill 62. I'm sure you've been following this as well. Um, this was the bill that had their recent amendment a few days ago to ban Burkhazini Cubs on even public transit in the province of Quebec. You wouldn't be able to receive or participate in any government services. 
And that is in line with the very racist Quebec secularism ideology. Yeah. And anyway, to wrap this up, the reason that I want to give the Antichrist to the province of Quebec and not this one racist organization is that the relationship that exists between the organization and the province is not a conflictual one. It's in fact very symbiotic. The mosque in Quebec City that had six people killed by white supremacists just months ago, that mosque bought a plot of land just southwest of Quebec City following the shooting. And there was a referendum in that town, the small town, to withdraw the zoning application so that they couldn't have the cemetery there. It turned out that Lamut were actually canvassing door to door in that town. And that there were people in the city government who were members or sympathetic with the organization. Yeah, this is so fucked up. I mean, having a place to bury people, it's almost like the most explicit way of saying you're not welcome here. Like you don't have a safe place to bury people who die in your community. There's not anything else to add other than saying it's just complete fuckery. Yeah, there's only one Muslim cemetery in the province, and it's in Laval. Oh, really? And my understanding is that it's more or less full. And now that they're not allowed to use the plot that they bought, they have to start from scratch and find another town. And hopefully Lamut doesn't target them there as well. Yeah. Um, so that, that's my anti shkoyach for the days to the province. Do you feel like that passes the Torontonian and Quebec test? I mean, I think the I would be most comfortable if you also highlight the fact that very similar things are happening in the rest of Canada. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I, I mean, in, in the sense that there's growing white nationalist organizing, but I think its relationship to the state is different in the rest of Canada. I think the way that it operates in the rest of Canada is about the immigration regime. If you're a Muslim person and you're living in Ontario, you're not going to experience any of the things I just listed from the state. Yes, correct. Well, that is depressing and factual and lift up our spirits, David. Okay. Um, so to lighten things up a little bit, are you familiar, Sam, with a man named Corey Fleischer? I am because I had a conversation with my mother about him this morning. Oh, no way. Okay, so Corey Fleischer, for our listeners, he's a guy who owns this uh, power washing company, and he started a project called Erasing Hate. Yes. Anglo Media in Montreal has written 450 articles about him. Yeah, they love him. And essentially what happens is that if you see hate graffiti, you know, you see a swastika, someone, you know, spray paints KKK, um, you call him. Tell him where it is, and it'll show up, and it'll remove it. It's a pretty great service that he's running there. Um, it's all pro bono. So he got a call recently from someone in Pointe de Cascade, because in a park there, there was an anchor, some historical anchor that had a swastika on it, painted on. Okay. So he went, and he was in the process of trying to remove it, and the mayor of the town confronted him, called the provincial police on him. They tried to arrest him and ejected him from the park, Wait, slow down. This is an anchor that had a swastika on it or that had a swastika spray painted onto it? So this anchor is, according to the mayor, a historical artifact that was found by divers 25 years ago in the St. Lawrence. And he says it predates World War II, it was some sort of local merchant ship, and thus is not racist. Was a swastika part of how they originally found the anchor? Yeah, it was painted onto the anchor. Oh, so, so it's not like where some youth ostensibly spray-painted pink swastika on it. Yeah, so Corey Fleischer stumbled onto a different level of hate art, so to speak. Yes. Where this is much more institutionalized. Okay. This mayor called the cops. Yeah, so he, he experienced the institutional resistance to it. Sure. Um, they're saying it's not racist. It predates its use by the Nazis, so it should be fine. And he essentially told them, like, I'm going to come back to remove this. If you eject me from the park, you might as well arrest me now because I'm not going to stop trying to remove it. Okay. Um, and he's currently at war with the mayor who refuses to back down. Okay. So the major tension here is that 
this anchor is on display, right? Oh, yeah. So it's this weird nautical theme park called St. Pierre Park. Okay. Um, it's near a museum about, it's like a local history museum about this canal off the St. Lawrence. Okay. So the question here is there's a museum that has an anchor in it. No, no, no. It, it, there's a park nearby the museum that's nautical themed because of its proximity to the museum. Okay. And the concern is that by erasing the swastika from the anchor, and I assume ruining the paint job in some capacity, you would be negatively affecting history, according to the very narrow-minded perspective of the mayor. Yeah, and what happened was they repainted the anchor a few years ago, and they repainted the swastika so it's more prominent, and there's a bright circle around it. So it's sort of the the first thing you see when you look at the anchor. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So my shkoyach is to Corey Fleischer for going to bat to try to remove the swastika from this park, confronting the most tired arguments about why the swastika is supposedly acceptable to be displayed in a public space like that, especially in Quebec, especially right now. Yeah. Shout out to Corey. So reflecting on our reflections, how did you feel about this episode? To be honest, I expected a lot more uh, humorous questions. So you're kind of subtweeting our listeners. I mean, I appreciate the seriousness of our listeners who wanted us to engage with very pertinent, immediate questions and ideas. Um, I, I, I think I was more prepared to talk about weird, funny things. What kind of a question would you have liked to answer, David? I don't know. That's a good, I mean, that's a good question. It's a question for a question. Yeah, if we got a question that said, what kind of question would you want to answer? I mean, if anyone's listening and has funny questions for us, please send them in. It'd be nice to uh, balance out the serious ones. All right. Just a quick reminder. We have a Patreon going. If you can, at this point in time, support in some way on a monthly basis, that would be greatly appreciated. But we want to actually point you in the direction of another Patreon that's going on. And that is the Patreon for Aurora Levens Morales. Yeah, uh, if you are a regular listener of the show, you should be familiar with Aurora and her work. And if you're not, uh, we would recommend checking out her Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Aurora Levens Morales. And as per usual, give us five stars on iTunes, write a lovely little review. Or, or anything you want to write, or any amount of stars you want to give. You can also write a question for us in the review because we get them every few weeks and that would be an interesting way of directing a question to us it'll be very confusing to all parties <laughs> trafe podcast is sam bick and david zinman a huge thanks to ckut 90.3 fm where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied ganyagahaga territory thanks as always to sax syndrome and socal for the music you heard in the episode Thanks also to Claire Hertig, our Minister of Design, to Kira Page, our social media consultant, to Candace O'Neill for designing TrafePodcast.com, and to Ariana Katz, the Trafe staff rabbi. Please follow us on the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F. Please send comments, suggestions, hate mail to TrafePodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send us letters, care of CKUT at 3647 University Street, Montreal, Quebec. More episodes soon. Amen. 
I understand that I'm entering into weird, like, internet bro territory. Wait, where are you going right now? As a practicing vegan, <laughs> do you feel like you would use a dead ram's horn if that were necessary? I wouldn't buy it. No, if it was Rosh Hashanah and you needed a shofar and a ram died and fell on your front lawn. I think, I think yeah, I think my opposition to religion would be the more relevant factor in this situation than my uh, relationship to vegan politics. Okay, well, imagine you were a, pra- you were a, you had a different relationship to Judaism and you were still the same vegan. Okay, well, then I just wouldn't buy a shofar because my relationship to veganism is an economic relationship. I just won't I, support those industries. But if a ram died on your front lawn mm-hmm. and it was around the time of Rosh Hashanah, yeah. you would consider using its dead horn? I mean, it's hard for me to get into the mindset of a religious Jew, but Tabernak. it definitely wouldn't interfere with my veganism since it's, again, an economic thing about industrial... Uh... Totally. Je comprends. I understand in English. <laughs>